This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Endless Impossible, written and performed by Frank Burton. Endless Impossible will also be available as a book, the fourth in the Ragbag series. Buy a copy for each of your friends. You'll be the talk of the town. Later on, we'll enter the footnotes section. That's the optional extra content for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Let's continue with Endless Impossible. Looking back on this moment, it's interesting to note which questions I decided to ask and which ones never even occurred to me. It hadn't occurred to me to question why my dad was never in the house. That was just his way of doing things. My mum was pretty much permanently drunk by this stage. I didn't question that either. I honestly don't remember wondering why she felt the need to hit the bottle first thing in the morning. Drinking was my mum's way of doing things. Everyone needs a hobby, right? When I was just a couple of years younger, my parents used to talk to me all the time. My mum would test me on my maths and spellings. My dad would say whatever random thought popped into his head. They even spoke to each other on occasions too. Nowadays, I barely heard a word from either of them. Instead of wondering why, I just enjoyed the peace and quiet. All things considered, my childhood home was an incredibly calm place. I could sit for hours literally doing nothing. Between my mum falling asleep in the early evenings and my dad returning home at midnight, I could have done anything. I could have landed myself in all kinds of trouble if the mood had taken me. You could call that a missed opportunity. A lot of the time I just sat staring into space. I'd like to be able to tell you what I was thinking about during these times, but I honestly can't remember. That was just my home life. In the outside world, there were even bigger questions I'd failed to ask. Maybe the biggest question of all, one of the greatest enigmas I've ever faced in my life, was staring me right in the face. Her name was Eileen Angel. I didn't learn the Eileen part at first. Later, I discovered that Eileen Angel was not Eileen Angel's real name. For now, I simply knew her as Miss Angel. At the start of the summer term, my teacher, Mrs Ashton, went off on maternity leave. Miss Angel was a temporary replacement. From the outset, it was clear Miss Angel was different to the other teachers. She was younger and prettier and wore her hair down instead of tying it up. I don't remember Miss Angel actually teaching us a single maths or English lesson. Not all the way through, anyway. Often she'd start talking about fractions or grammar or whatever, then change the subject to something else. This was fine with me. I wasn't particularly fussed about the curriculum. And when Miss Angel changed the subject, she always had something interesting to say. Sometime during the first week of our new teacher's arrival, she sat the class down and asked the question, How many people here believe in aliens? Most of the kids put their hands up. It wasn't a subject I'd given a great deal of thought to myself, so I kept mine down. Miss Angel paused for a moment, studying those hands in the air. Good, she said. That's the wonderful thing about children. You're open-minded enough to accept the idea of life on other planets, even if you've never come into contact with aliens yourself. Very good. Keep your minds open, all of you. I'm here to tell you, aliens do exist. Most grown-ups don't believe in them, unfortunately. Some do but they always get the details wrong. 
A lot of people who believe in aliens seem to think they fly around in these disc-shaped vessels. Flying saucers, miss, someone called out. Miss Angel nodded. Those people are right about one thing, she continued. Aliens do exist, but their vehicles aren't saucer-shaped. They aren't rocket-shaped either. Earth-dwelling humans are yet to discover the benefits of building triangular ships. She drew a large triangle in the centre of the blackboard. Can anyone tell me what kind of triangle this is? The boy sitting next to me. Remember him? My silent partner? He was usually extremely reserved, but somehow, even at this early stage, Miss Angel had brought something out in him. Equilateral, he called out. Correct. Miss Angel returned his smile warmly. An equilateral triangle is by far the most suitable shape for an intergalactic spacecraft. There are all sorts of technical reasons for this, of course, but I'm sure we can all agree the equilateral triangle is a beautiful shape, much more beautiful than a plain circle or a boring old cylinder. Part of the reason the equilateral triangle is the perfect shape for an intergalactic spacecraft is simply that it looks nice. A few kids started chattering amongst themselves. Miss Angel silenced them with a simple shh. Then she said, I'll tell you a story. I could begin by saying, once upon a time, but luckily we can be a little more precise than that. This story begins in 1967, 22 years ago, two years before the very first Earth-dwelling human first set foot on the moon. A child was born in a faraway planet, a planet which despite being light-years away from Earth was actually very similar to Earth. Same temperature, same atmosphere, same oceans, even the same kinds of life. There were humanoid creatures very similar to Earth's Homo sapiens. So similar, in fact, you could barely tell them apart. Their societies were very different, however. The alien race were far more technologically advanced. They were capable of intergalactic space travel. They were immune to all diseases. They got on with each other. Not a single war was fought throughout the whole of this planet's history. War was literally an alien concept to these people. They began studying alien societies from afar, including our society here on Earth. Don't get me wrong, children. There are some wonderful things about this planet of ours, but there are also some truly horrific things, too. The alien race were appalled by the levels of needless death and destruction on the planet Earth. They wondered what they could do to help. Could they educate the Earth's people somehow? Surely they couldn't land one of their intergalactic spaceships on the Earth's surface. The Earth people would be likely to kill them, assuming their visit to be a hostile invasion. Coming from a planet in which violence didn't exist, their triangular spacecraft wasn't equipped with defensive weapons. So, Miss, someone said. Yes, said Miss Angel, smiling in spite of the interruption. What were the aliens called? I'm glad you asked, said Miss Angel. Their name is unpronounceable to humans. For a start, they don't speak aloud, preferring instead to communicate via telepathy. I have my own name for them. I think you might like this, children. You know that feeling when you look in a mirror and you realise everything's backwards? The writing on your T-shirt becomes unreadable. Left is right. And yet, what you're seeing in the mirror is pretty much the same as everyone else sees. A mirror image of your face is almost, but not quite, identical to your actual face. The aliens are rather like that. They look the same as us, and yet they are our direct opposite. That's why when I speak about this alien race, 
I simply call them the mirror. Amazing, whispered the boy sitting next to me. I said nothing. Anyway, said Miss Angel, the child who was born on the mirror's planet in the year the earthlings called 1967 was a special child. She had been selected to be delivered to the planet Earth to live among them to tell the Earth-dwelling humans about the mirror people. This task would take 35 years. First the girl would have to grow up, then as an adult she'd need to travel around the world, spreading her message far and wide. But not too far, not too wide. If the humans ever discovered there was an actual alien living among them, she'd be captured and locked away in a laboratory. The story needed to be passed from person to person, in secret. This, by the way, is a secret story. I can't let too many people know about it, otherwise the girl will be in danger. What's the girl's name? said the boy sitting next to me. It's a good one, said Miss Angel. Her name is very fitting. This happened quite by accident. The aliens left her in a convenient place on the steps of a maternity hospital in London. She was found shortly afterwards, taken care of by the nursing staff and put up for adoption. Her adopted parents obviously had no knowledge of their new daughter's origins. How could they? She looked just like a human baby. And so they gave her a human name. Eileen. Eileen, my silent partner piped up again. You're wondering why I find it so suitable, said Miss Angel. He nodded. Well, it's not a secret code or anything, said Miss Angel with a cheeky grin. Eileen sounds a bit like Alien, that's all. Where is Eileen now, he said, continuing the dialogue, almost as though he'd forgotten the rest of the class were there. Most of them had probably never heard him speak at such length before. The same goes for me. I spent half of my childhood sitting next to this kid and then promptly forgot his name. I couldn't possibly say where she is exactly, said Miss Angel, but she's carrying out her mission to the best of her ability. So what's going to happen in 35 years' time, he said. It's less than that now, said Miss Angel. Remember, Eileen is 22 years old now. In 15 years' time, it will be the year 2002. Eileen will be 35 years old. By this stage in her life, she will have done all she can. Many people will have heard her secret story and spread it secretly to others. This knowledge will be greatly beneficial to the human race. The idea that it's possible to live without conflict, without violence. The fact that such a society exists elsewhere in the galaxy, surely that must mean that the same state can be achieved right here. But this in itself will take some time. There is nothing more Eileen will be able to accomplish. And because so many people will know of her existence, it will no longer be safe for Eileen to stay on the Earth. And so, in 2002, 35 years after her arrival, Eileen will travel to the agreed location, an anonymous field somewhere in the English countryside. One night, a giant equilateral triangle will descend from the skies and carry her back home. Miss Angel uttered this last sentence with her eyes closed, her arms raised to the ceiling like a kind of incantation. On finishing the story, she kept her eyes closed for a moment, breathing out a long, contented breath, palms still outstretched to the heavens. A moment later, she span around, rubbed the triangle off the board, and turned to face the class as though nothing peculiar had just happened. Feel free to talk amongst yourselves. I wasn't particularly impressed by Miss Angel's story. 
I considered myself too old for fairy tales, and that's clearly what this was, despite a number of my classmates apparently interpreting the tale as fact. There were whispers in the playground. One time, while I was standing on the goal line, waiting for the ball to bounce back to my end, I overheard a couple of girls talking about Miss Angel. I asked her how old she is, one of them said. She's twenty-two years old. So what, said the other one. Don't you remember? Eileen arrived on the earth as a baby twenty-two years ago, and Miss Angel knows all about it. What are you saying? I'm saying it's her. Eileen is Miss Angel. She doesn't look much like an alien to me, I muttered to myself. But then I thought some more about it. Clearly Miss Angel wasn't an alien, but she didn't look like other people. As it happened, she was the most beautiful person I'd ever laid eyes on. As a nine-year-old boy, it's difficult to know what to do with that information. I spent a lot of time looking at Miss Angel's face. First of all, because I was obliged to. She was my teacher, and I spent hours each day watching her from my seat. Also, I had a framed photograph of Miss Angel, which I kept by the side of my bed. She gave it to me at the end of her first week. She placed the picture in my bag, held me by the shoulder, looked me in both eyes and said, Keep this safe, Frank. Keep it by your bed. If you ever have bad dreams in the night, take a look at this face. It will calm you down. I assumed I wasn't the only one to receive this gift from Miss Angel. I'm pretty sure my silent partner had one already. My dad discovered the picture a few weeks later. His habit of bringing various bits of junk home with him at the end of the day had begun a few months earlier. By this stage there was a box in every room of the house, full to the brim with randomly selected items, my bedroom included. A few months later this had expanded to a stack of boxes in each room. By the time I moved out at the age of 18, you could barely move for my dad's bric-a-brac. For now, it was just the one box in the corner of the room. He wandered into my room late at night with a small torch in his hand and began rummaging through the box in the corner. "'You all right, Dad?' I whispered. "'Oh,' he whispered back. "'You're awake?' "'Yeah.' "'I'm just looking for something,' he said. "'Why do I turn the light on?' "'Okay.' The light slapped me in the face a second later. I covered my eyes with the duvet as my dad continued rummaging. Found it, he said. Can you turn the light off now, please? He didn't turn off the light. Dad, I said. I poked my face out of the covers to find him perched on the edge of my bed, staring at the photo. Who's this? he said. That's my new teacher. Oh, well, she's a lovely looking lady, I must say. I'm sure she's very good. She is, actually, I said. I like her. Good, he said. Glad to hear you're getting on well at school. You'd better get some sleep. Yes, please. Dad left the room. Dad, I called after him. The light. My dad returned to the room. He didn't turn off the light. Frank, he said, why do you have a picture of your school teacher next to your bed in a frame of all things? Miss Angel gave it to me. Who's Miss Angel? That's her in the picture. Oh, he said looking at the picture again. Nice name. Nice frame too, actually. wonder where she got that. I really need to get some sleep, I said. I'm still a little bit confused here, Frank. Why is your teacher giving you a picture of herself? I'm not sure, I said. I mean, it's a nice picture and everything, don't get me wrong. She has a nice face, doesn't she, I said. Yes, as I say, I, uh... You think she has a nice face? 
Yeah, I said. You enjoy looking at this picture? I look at it sometimes, yeah. Would you say she's beautiful, Frank? Maybe. I'd say she looks different to other people. I'm not sure how to explain this, but I feel like she's chosen to look this way. Like, usually people don't get to choose what they look like. I feel like somehow Miss Angel has chosen to have this face. My dad chuckled to himself. He sat down beside me again. Oh, I see, he said. Oh, I see what's going on here, Frank. You've got a crush. First one, is it? I don't have a crush on my teacher, Dad. It's fine, he said. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Most natural thing in the world. Wait until you get a bit older. Once those hormones go storming through your system, you'll pretty much have a crush on everyone. I don't have a crush on Miss Angel, I repeated. I had a crush on a teacher once, said my dad. Very confusing time it was. I didn't have anyone to tell me it was perfectly normal, so let me tell you. It's perfectly normal, okay? Uh, okay, I said. Thanks for telling me that. Who was your teacher? My teacher? It was a maths one, you know. What was her name? Let's not get into that, said my dad. You just get some sleep, Frank. I think I'll come into school with you tomorrow, have a little word with this teacher of yours. Please don't do that, I said. Don't worry, he said. I won't mention you having a crush on her. I haven't. Of course you don't. Mum's the word and all that. Why do you want to talk to her? I said. I'm just a bit concerned about her handing out framed photographs of herself to impressionable young lads. Impressionable? I said. Yes, he said. Impressionable. For all I know, she could be filling your head with all sorts of funny ideas. I suppose that would have been the perfect opportunity for me to mention the alien thing, but I decided against it. I wanted to get some sleep and didn't fancy opening another can of worms right now. I was hoping my dad had forgotten about his plans to speak to Miss Angel by the morning, but no such luck. He drove me to school early. At quarter to nine, while the other kids were messing in the playground, I stood by my dad's side as he hovered outside the classroom window. Miss Angel was inside, marking books at her desk. He tapped on the glass. She looked up, smiled and welcomed us inside. You must be Frank Burton Sr., she greeted, shaking him by the hand. How do you know my name? he said. Oh, it's in the paperwork. What can I do for you, Mr Burton? I must say, Frank Jr. is a very bright young man. I hope everything's OK. It's fine, he said. I just wanted to return this. He reached into his bag and pulled out the framed photograph. I didn't realise he brought it with him. Oh, this isn't mine, said Miss Angel. Frank said you gave it to him. Therefore it isn't mine, she said. It's Frank's. Do you mind if I ask why you gave it to him? Said my dad. I don't mind you asking, she said. OK, he said. Why'd you give it to him? It's a message of positivity, she said. A what? Studies have shown that children of Frank's age are particularly vulnerable to early forms of depression and anxiety. Depression at age nine? I don't think so, love. Let's put it this way, Mr Burton. Do you remember being nine years old? Well, just about. Then you probably remember some of the idle thoughts you had at the time. It's the age when young people first begin to really question the world around them. Not just questions like, how do televisions work? Or, why do you have to go to school? This is the age when a boy like your son is likely to begin exploring more existential matters internally. Often the child won't have the ability to express these thoughts aloud. They might ask, why are we here? Or, why does the world exist? 
all very valid questions, typical for children of this age group. But even if they do pose these questions aloud, there are a whole host of internal questions the child is unable to articulate. Questions, perhaps, that human beings are yet to develop the words for. Does this make sense? Uh, yeah, but... So the picture is a reminder to Frank that I, Miss Angel, understand that there are thoughts that cannot be expressed in words and feelings that don't make a great deal of sense. This is a confusing time for a young boy. The picture is there as a reminder that I am here for him at any time, either in person or, dare I say it, in spirit. Right, said my dad quietly, gazing at the wall. Spirit. So, is this a religious thing, or...? No, no, she said. I'm not a religious person myself. I do have my own belief system, but... What I'm saying is, spirit is a figure of speech. I see, said my dad, beginning to look bored. All very good, I suppose. I'll return the picture to Frank's room and, uh, well, I'd better be off to work. Nice to meet you, Mrs Angel. Miss, thank you. Nice to meet you too. My dad glanced down at me, remembering I was there. I'll see you later, Frank. Bye, Dad. Oh, he said, stopping halfway through his turn towards the door. Yes, said Miss Angel. What was I going to say? said my dad. I did have another question. Is it a question about school? No, that's not it. Your belief system that you mentioned, Miss Angel. I'm just curious as to what it is. It's a long story, she said. I wouldn't want to hold you up if you need to get off to the office. The office can wait, said my dad firmly. Miss Angel looked my dad up and down for a moment. Hmm, she said. I could tell you, but I'm not sure you're the sort of person who'd be entirely receptive to it. How do you mean? I hope I'm not insulting your intelligence, she said. Receptiveness to the story behind my belief system requires the listener to be a certain type of person. I can see that you're not the right type of person. How do you know what type of person I am? He snapped defensively. There are ways of telling, said Miss Angel. Clearly you're a fiercely intelligent man who's likely to rip my fanciful ideas to shreds. While Miss Angel's words made little sense to me, my dad grinned from ear to ear. Fiercely intelligent, he beamed. Thank you for the compliment. I'll be off. He left with a nod to Miss Angel and a wave to me. To my complete surprise, my dad picked me up from school that afternoon. I was disappointed. I'd have preferred to have walked down to the bookshop as usual. Apparently he wanted another chat. He waited until we were safely in the car. I've been thinking about what happened this morning, he called back at me from behind the wheel. I like this Miss Angel lady. She's got her head screwed on. She's got her feet on the ground and her heart's in the right place, so solid heart, solid head, solid feet. It's a shame she's just a maternity cover, really. I'm glad you like her, I said. Our encounter this morning reminded me of that load of nonsense your Uncle Claude came up with the other week. Women are strange creatures, remember that? Just in case I wasn't clear, Frank, your Uncle Claude is wrong about that. Women are no more mysterious than anyone else. Claude wouldn't agree, but he's been a single man for many years. Maybe if he stops seeing women as strange creatures, one of them will finally agree to settle down with them. Some blokes think women are only after your money. That's not true either. If it were, Claude would have hordes of gold diggers beating down his door. He must have tons of cash stashed away. Nice house too. That's the way it goes. What I'm saying is, Frank, women are the same as we are. But, he added, then stopped to think about the next bit. A cyclist cut in front of us and my dad slammed his fist on the horn. 
You got a death wish or something, he muttered. What were you saying, I said. These stupid bikes. Before that, Dad, you said women are the same as we are, but... Oh, yeah, he said. There's one thing to watch out for. A lot of men are just like Uncle Claude. They seem to think women are a different species. And some women, not all of them, but some of them, have cottoned on to this. They can spot a man who thinks the way Uncle Claude does and they play up to this idea that they're mysterious, magical entities. They can use their looks and their charm to manipulate these men into doing whatever they want. Or some of these women after your money? Probably, yes. But there's more to it than that. There's much more to life than the acquisition of capital, Frank. Much more. You'll learn about these things as you get older. All I'm saying is, this Miss Angel of yours, I like her. She's a very interesting woman, very perceptive. But I think she's one of those women I was telling you about. She's a manipulator. She's got the looks and the charm, sure. But that sort of thing doesn't work on me. She was clever enough to realise that. So what are you saying? I said. I'm saying, he said, then took a breath while he considered the question. I'm saying, I like her. I like Miss Angel. I'm glad she's your teacher. Just be careful around her. Don't tell her anything personal. She could use that against you. This is what manipulative people do, Frank. They try to find out as much about you as possible, not because they're interested, but because they want to figure out your strengths and weaknesses. They need to know your strengths so that they can compliment you on them. That makes you feel good about yourself. It also makes you feel good about them. They want to know about your weaknesses so they know exactly where to strike if a need arises. Are you sure that's what Miss Angel's like? I said. Maybe, he said. You can never be sure. You just have to be careful. Don't go spilling your secrets to someone who can't be trusted. What kind of secrets? Like what she was saying earlier, your innermost thoughts. Don't go blurting things out in front of her. If you ever want to share your innermost thoughts, you can come to me. I'm a good listener. I've been around for a long time, so I know what's what with the world, just about. I'm still learning myself, of course. No one knows everything, but you can trust me, Frank, OK? OK, I said. Thanks, Dad. I felt sure that my dad knew what he was talking about. I wanted to agree with him. The trouble was, it seemed as though every female I encountered was very much like a creature from another world. Girls at school were weird enough. Then there were the grown-ups. The two most mysterious people in my life at that time were Miss Angel and the bookshop owner in the luminous tracksuit. Then there was my mum, who, in her own way, was even more enigmatic than either of them. I realised there was nothing I could do about any of this. Apart from one thing. It occurred to me I could solve the riddle of the bookshop quite easily. Maybe my dad's lecture on the subjects of manipulation unlocked something in my mind. I'd always resisted asking the shopkeeper outright what the deal was with their occasional specialist customers. Surely there was another way. If I engaged her in conversation, got her talking about the business, I could tease the information out of her somehow. Then, at the very least, I'd have something to report back to Dennis, who, I imagined, was on the verge of forgetting all about me by this stage. And so, one afternoon, I went for it. I usually perched on my stool in the far corner of the shop, out of the shopkeeper's sight, where she could happily forget I was there. On this occasion, on my arrival, I picked up the stool and placed it a few feet away from the counter, between two large piles of books. My name's Frank, I said as I sat down. The shopkeeper didn't respond. I've been reading some stuff by Peter Benchley, I said. He's the one who wrote Jaws. 
He's written other things as well, mostly about sharks. Do you have any favourite authors yourself? I don't have much time to read, said the woman, still gazing out of the front window. What do you do instead? I make up stories in my head. Really? I said, so do I. I'm working on one right now, she added. It's about a boy who won't leave me alone. I see, I said. Sorry. I picked up my book and started reading. I was just wondering if you needed any help, I said, looking after the shop. Thanks for the offer, she said, but I wouldn't want to be accused of employing child labour. I'm not asking for money, I said. I could be a volunteer. Doing what? I don't know, I said. Some of these shelves could do with a little more organisation. I could put them into sections. No thanks. Or if you need any help out the back. Out the back, the woman repeated, looking directly at me for the first time. You know, I said, maybe you need some help with whatever it is that you do in that back room. The back room is just for my paperwork, accounting. It's not really a task for a boy of your age. I've noticed you take people into that back room sometimes. Only my accountants. You must have a lot of accountants. You've had three different ones in the last week. Thank you for keeping count, she said. You'll make a decent accountant yourself one day. Maybe you could show me the ropes. As you suggest, I have enough accountants already. Seems a bit strange, I said, considering how rarely a book gets sold in this place. It's surprising you need an accountant at all. The shopkeeper directed her gaze back to the window and said nothing more. I returned to my book. I left at five o'clock, as I usually did, without saying goodbye. I said nothing the next day either, just sat reading in silence, maintaining my position on the stool beside the counter. I remained silent again the day after that, eyes glued to my Peter Benchley. Around half-past four, a customer walked in. I could tell straight away this man wasn't here for the literature. He was scruffy and unshaven, looking like he hadn't slept for days. He crept through the door of the shop like a burglar, then checked behind him, as though expecting someone to be spying on him from outside. He peered furtively over his shoulder two or three times on his approach to the counter. In fact, he was so busy looking over his shoulder, he completely failed to spot me sitting there watching him. The man nodded at the shopkeeper and whispered something I couldn't quite catch. I heard the word burgundy. As was the usual pattern with this type of visitor, the shopkeeper took the man into the back room. I resisted the temptation to listen in at the door. Ten minutes later, the shopkeeper returned to her counter as though nothing had happened. Twenty minutes later, the customer still hadn't returned. Curiosity got the better of me. "'What's he doing back there?' I said. "'My accountant,' said the shopkeeper. "'He's gone already. Prefer to leave by the back alley.' "'He didn't look like an accountant to me.' "'What does an accountant look like?' she said. "'He doesn't need a shirt and tie. He's freelance.' What does Burgundy mean? I had no idea how the shopkeeper would respond to this question. I couldn't have guessed at the reaction I got. She leapt out from behind the counter, snatched the book from my hand, and hurled it across the room as though it were on fire. What did you do that for? I said. That was a private conversation, she thundered. In a public place, I muttered. This is not a public place, she shouted. This is my place of business. She took a few breaths, staring at the floor. She looked up and said, I could ask you to leave, young man, but I'm not going to. If you really want to know what goes on in that back room, you better come with me. She marched into the back room. I stayed seated for a moment, thrown off guard by her outburst, and more than a little frightened by it. 
What was going to happen if I followed her into that room? This woman was a stranger. I might not make it out alive. Are you coming or what? She hollered. Well, I thought, at least if she kills me, I'd have died in an interesting way. I entered the pokey little office. There was a small writing desk in the corner with a stack of paperwork on it. In the middle of the room was a creaky wooden table with a chair at either side. The shopkeeper gestured for me to take a seat opposite her. It reminded me of one of those police interrogation scenes I'd become familiar with through reading Ed McBain. I sat down, still peering around the room, trying to act casual. First of all, she said, it's not Burgundy, it's Bermondsey. It's a district in South London. I haven't heard of it, I said. Why would you, she said. You're a kid from the north. I was born in the south. I don't need your life history, she said. I'm only telling you this because otherwise I'd have to bar you from coming in my shop. I wouldn't want to do that. You seem like a lost soul with nowhere else to go. I was about to object to her description of me, but stopped myself. Seen as you're here every day, she continued, you might as well know what goes on in this room. You can't tell anyone, though, OK? I won't, I said, giving the lie away by nodding my head at the same time. I'm serious, she said. No one can possibly know about this. I won't speak a word about it, I said with conviction. Not to anyone. Good. Then came the biggest surprise of all. The shopkeeper smiled. As soon as she revealed her teeth, her whole demeanour seemed to change, as though she'd ripped off a mask. My name's Vanessa, she said. What's yours again? Frank, I said. Nice to meet you, Frank. Nice to meet you too, Vanessa, and thank you for letting me read in your shop without paying for anything. It's fine, she said. You seem to have already deduced that I don't make my money from the bookshop. I nodded. This is where I make my money, she added. What does Bermondsey have to do with it? I said. It's a password. If someone comes in asking to use my services, they have to know the password. I only give the password out to people I trust. If a customer knows the password, that means they've heard it from someone I trust, which means I can trust them too. That's what Bermondsey has to do with it. Is that where you're from? Is that why you picked that particular password? Frank, I think you're getting a little preoccupied with the password. There are more important details to discuss. But anyway, no, I'm not from Bermondsey. I have no connection to the place whatsoever. That means no one can research my background and take a wild guess at what the password might be. That's clever, I said. You want to know what's cleverer than that, she said. I nodded. Vanessa spread her arms open wide and declared, Everything else! Oh, I said. Not a big fan of passwords, then. Forget about the password, Frank. This room is where it all happens. It's like a magician's box. A customer walks in here, and when they leave ten minutes later, they are a different person entirely. Same face, same clothes, same DNA. But everything else has been irreversibly altered. They have a different name, a different date of birth, a different national insurance number. In their pocket, they'll be carrying their brand new passport. Many of these customers will use their new passport to leave the country. Others will build a new life for themselves half an hour's drive down the road. In every case, people come here because they want to stop being themselves. Sometimes this is because they're running away from something or someone. Often it's because they're desperate. They've found themselves in some terrifying, life-threatening trouble. Sometimes they're in absolutely no trouble at all. They're regular people with a marriage and a stable job. 
They've become bored with their life, so they've decided to leave it all behind and start again somewhere else. I try not to work with bad people. I realise it can be difficult to know who's bad and who's good. I try to base my selections on whether or not someone has committed a major crime. Killed someone? Sorry, you can't have my password. We'll let the authorities deal with you. Someone wants to kill you? Come on in. Unless the person who wants to kill you is doing so because you've done something equally terrible. In which case, no passwords for you. I don't expect you to understand all of this, Frank. Oh, I understand, I said. I've read plenty of thrillers. There's always some guy in the background selling fake passports and so on. Vanessa's smile vanished in a flash. Fake passports, she said quietly. That tells me how little you understand of my operation, young man. I do not sell fake passports. I provide my customers with a service that allows them to change their identity. If you pay for my services, your new passport will be as genuine as anyone else's. But surely the name on the passport won't be the same as the one on their birth certificate? Their old birth certificate or their new one? My customers get a new birth certificate too. A genuine one? They're just as genuine as yours or mine, which is to say they're pieces of paper. That's all your birth certificate is. It's a piece of paper with a bit of ink on it. It's meaningless. The only evidence you need that a person's been born is the fact that they're standing in front of you. What's their name? What does it matter? Names are just collections of sounds. What difference does it make if, when a customer walks out of this room, the collection of sounds that makes up their name is different to their previous collection of sounds? The only thing that really matters is that that person exists. The only genuine thing about that person is the person themselves. Everything else is bureaucracy. OK, I said. I promise I won't call your passports fake again. Vanessa's smile returned. Thank you for your understanding. So how do you do it? How do you change someone's identity for them? I've said enough already, she said. It's rather boring and complicated, plus you don't really need to know. That's fine, I said. I do have one question. Go ahead. Well, I said, with a hint of caution. I, well, I know you were fobbing me off the other day, but I can't help wondering what you meant when you said that you make up stories in your head instead of reading books. Is that true? Oh, yes, she said. I do it all the time. So do I, I said. I want to get better at it. I want to be a proper writer one day. Good luck to you, she said. I don't. My stories are just for me. What kind of stories do you write? I said. I don't write them, she said. They're in my head and they're just for me, so that's that. You want a story? There's a whole heap of them right through there. Also, I happen to like the story I just told you. I smiled back at her. Totally, I agreed. Thank you for listening. If you're interested, there's the footnotes section coming up after the theme song. I can't tell you anything about it. It's only for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Please take a look at my website, frankburton.co.uk, where you'll find The Green Room, a webcomic about celebrities in the afterlife. There's also the Ragbag Rambler video series and much, much more besides. My other podcast is called I Like The Sound, and we've got some great stuff coming up on that very soon indeed. I will see you soon. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. There's something.
something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous. Let's misbehave. When Adam won Eve's hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. He didn't care about those apples out of season. They say the spring means just one thing to little lovebirds. We're not above birds. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, it would be the great event of 1928, dear. Let's misbehave. Welcome to the second lot of footnotes. This is going well, isn't it? It's a great series, this. You're in for a treat for the rest of it as well. We've had two episodes and it's just getting started. There's some some brilliant stuff in this series. I'm really pleased with it. Uh, so <laughs> if you've made it this far, don't stop now. And don't let this footnote section put you off because uh, this is the kind of chaotic part. Again, if you're new to this process, uh, you don't have to listen to the footnotes, okay? The footnotes are just there. This is your disclaimer at the start of this section. We have had the painstakingly scripted section that came before it, which I've put a lot of work into. Then we have the footnotes section, which I have done no preparation for. The time that it takes to record it, and that is all the time that I'm putting into it, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Whereas uh, for, for every minute of the previous section, there's like an hour's work goes into each minute, you know, whereas this, uh, uh, <laughs> the footnote section, a minute's work goes into each minute. <laughs> that is the ratio. That is the difference between the opening section of the podcast and the closing section. They're very different. <laughs> I have to say this because I hope you realise that this is the part of the show that I put the least amount of effort into. I hope that is apparent as well. <laughs> because if if it turns out that the footnote section is just as good as the main section, I might as well just do all footnotes. Because I'll be saving myself a lot of work. I really will. But there we have it. So uh, at the end of the last, I'm just getting back into doing these footnote sections as well. So uh, I may have been a little bit rusty on the last one. I think I did okay. I think I did okay. But I, I do recall at, at the very end of the last one, I've just started rambling about music that I've been listening to and looking on my Spotify and say, oh, what have I been listening to recently? And I th it's very difficult to articulate, isn't it? I've probably just 
came across as like some some guy sat on a park bench somewhere just rambling to passers-by about things that he's been listening to uh, I, yeah listen to this thing it was a really good album it was really good you see it's so difficult to articulate if you're just talking off the top of your head which is uh, as we established that is what i'm doing in the footnote sections you start talking about music and uh, with no preparation it's very difficult to articulate why it is that you like something that is music you know how do you describe music within words it's very difficult isn't it so you end up just saying things like oh this is an album that i've been listening to recently it is really good i recommend it you know you're at a complete loss for words that being said i would like to talk to you about music some more actually as i mentioned at the end of the last episode at that time i was about to go and watch pj harvey live in manchester and now I am back. I am back from that gig and it was absolutely incredible as you may have imagined it to be. Uh, as I said, I, I, I couldn't imagine it being a bad gig. You know, this we're talking about PJ Harvey, one of the all-time greats in my opinion and also she's been in the business for 30 years. So I can't imagine that <laughs> the gig was going to go badly somehow. And and it didn't. It was great. So she performed her new album in its entirety from start to finish to open the show. The new album is called I Inside the Old Year Dying and uh, it's really, really good. Then she kind of uh, played some of her old stuff and that was great too, obviously. Uh, like I said, I mean, it's particularly like the uh, the old stuff she was doing, like songs from the 90s that she must have performed thousands of times. There were really, really great versions of those songs and it was just so effortless on her part. It just, I'm sure it wasn't effortless. But I think she's one of those performers who is able to make what I presume is a very technically accomplished thing seem like the easiest thing in the world. There's something great about that. There aren't that many performers who can do this, I don't think. Um, but there's something about the way that PJ Harvey performs, which I didn't really realise. I'd never seen her live before, so this was a new experience for me. Yeah, she just has this way about her. She comes on the stage and just kind of opens her mouth and this kind of beautiful sound comes out. And it's just, it just makes it look as easy as crossing the street. It's really quite an accomplishment. And she, she's, she's like that with the, the instruments that she plays as well. She'll just pick up a guitar and play it like it's nothing. It's not like she's just banging out three chords. It's like that PJ Harvey songs can be quite complex. There's certain things that you can do. I think certain instruments, part of the reason why perhaps uh, the guitar and the piano are such kind of popular instruments is because these kind of great performers can just get on stage and pick up a guitar and play all of this stuff, which is highly technically accomplished and just make it look like the easiest thing in the world. Uh, same with the piano as well. Sat behind a piano, just like bashing out these highly complex pieces with a little grin on your face. You can do that, can't you, with those instruments? Because all you're doing is using your fingers. So it's not a great deal of physical effort. There aren't that many drummers who can make drumming look easy because drumming is hard work, isn't it? You really, <laughs> it's, it's a real workout, I can imagine. I've never played the drums, so I don't know, but I presume. It looks very difficult and it looks like you have to be very physically fit to uh, actually play an entire show. 
particularly with like heavy rock and stuff like that, it must be a difficult thing to do if <laughs> if you're not really feeling up to it. You know what I mean? Uh, you, the, the drummer really has to just turn up, and regardless of what you've been doing, like if you're on tour, uh, you've been travelling, you haven't slept the night before, and you do you. A bit groggy, you don't know where you are, which city am I in, that sort of thing. You know, you still got to turn up and and uh, bash it all out. <laughs> it's a difficult job, I can imagine. So the guitar and the piano, are, they're the instruments that you can do that on. You can just kind of make it look really easy, even though it's not, uh, <laughs> even though I'd imagine it's um, incredibly strenuous in itself. You know, there aren't that many singers, like I say, who make singing look easy especially if you're belting out noisy rock songs you know which which pj harvey does <laughs> makes it look like she's having a <laughs> casual conversation over a coffee you know most singers look like they're really putting the effort in don't they and you can't get away with this with like brass and woodwind instruments either can you because you just <laughs> particularly brass i think you see louis armstrong playing the trumpet and he does make that look easy somehow. It just from the sound that comes out, he kind of makes it look effortless in its own way. But if you look at his face, he's putting so much effort into, <laughs> into that. Every single part of his face is concentrated on the job in hand, you know. So it's not the same as casually bashing out a concerto from the comfort of your seat behind the piano. I would say. But um, there you go. That, that's that's an interesting little diversion, isn't it? Um, just something that occurred to me at the PJ Harvey gig. And uh, altogether, it was, just a, it was just a great show. Really, really great. Uh, absolutely packed out, sold out crowd. There was lots of, lots of teenagers there, which I was kind of surprised by in a way, because, you know, I would expect that most of the fans in the crowd would be people of my age who kind of got into... PJ Harvey in the 90s and stuck with it I don't know why I'm surprised in a way because she's a great artist and why wouldn't young people be getting into her it's just that I'm just curious as to how they know who she is uh, I don't know is, is the answer to that uh, she's one of those artists who has built up a following over time but also she's attracting young people obviously as well her songs seem to crop up in films quite a bit. That m might be something to do with that. I don't know. But I guess that one of the reasons why I was surprised that I've been to see acts who are of the same generation. Like I went to see Stereo Lab last year, who, by the way, one of the best live acts you will ever see. And I really highly recommend going to see Stereo Lab live. I think that show really exceeded my expectations because it's they sound completely different live to the way they do on a record. It all seems to be, I, I don't know that much about their process, but it all seems to be that they are putting together kind of these uh, alternative versions of existing kind of recorded stuff because their, their recorded music is very kind of lighthearted, kind of very poppy sort of relaxing easy listening type thing whereas uh, you see them live it's a lot heavier a lot kind of rockier and a lot more psychedelic and it's just a great show i highly recommend seeing stereo lab but uh the thing is when I, I went to see stereo lab and most of the people in the crowd were i don't think there was anybody under 30 in the whole crowd you know which is a shame in a way because i think they're obviously at the top of their game it'd be great for them to somehow uh, attract 
a lot of young people in the way that PJ Harvey has, because I think everybody should go and see Stereo Love. As I've said, I've said <laughs> I think I've said that about twelve times now. Have I made my points? Have I made the points? Do you want to go and see Stereo Love? I'm thinking of going and seeing them again because they're uh, they're they're touring again, I believe. So. <laughs> Once again, I'll let you know how that goes from my little gig reviews here. <laughs> I'm sure that's what you've all downloaded this podcast for, is just to hear me talking about things that I've done. Now, one funny thing that happened when I was walking out of this, uh, as I say, amazing gig, PJ Harvey. I was walking out, there's a, a couple discussing the gig behind me, and um, one of them said, well, she didn't play anything from... Stories from the city, stories from the sea. That's my favourite album. You often hear people say this, don't you? Oh, they didn't play this, they didn't play that. And it kind of annoys me in a way. It's just like, you know, what's, you know they don't have to play the stuff that you wanted them to play. It's up to them. Leave it alone. <laughs> I actually laughed out loud at my own internal response because I imagined myself turning around to this man and saying, well, no one likes that album. And no one likes you. <laughs> now, that would be harsh on two counts because uh, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea is indeed a great album. And I'm sure people do like uh, this man, you know, even though he seems rather curmudgeonly, uh, having been to this great gig. And uh, all he can say about it is that, well, oh, she didn't play the songs that I like. You know, get over it. <laughs> We're talking about an artist who has been around for 30 years. How could she possibly play every single song that she's recorded? We'd be hit, we would literally be there for like eight or nine hours. And that in itself would, would be nice uh, in its own way, but she needs to get to bed at some point, you know. <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about live music as an experience in itself, I, I really, really enjoy just going to see live music. I get a lot out of it. And it's difficult to say why, in a way. It's, uh, it's difficult to describe. Again, it's one of those things that's just difficult to describe exactly what that experience is and what that experience means to me and obviously means to lots of other people as well. I just think there is something really beneficial about experiencing live music i think it's one of those things that if you don't do it regularly i think it's something that you should consider if you're not the sort of person who would go and see like a live band or a live orchestra or whatever it is that you're into i just think there is more to it than meets the eye there's a number of things when you go and see like a like a really famous musician that there is that sort of that thing of oh this person whose music that I have been listening to for decades I'm actually in the same room as them isn't that cool so there is that and there is that just the fact that you're listening to music that you like there's that as well and you're kind of sharing that experience with hundreds of people or thousands of people depending on the venue and but I think there's more to it than that. There's there's something else going on. There's something that is almost like... I've, oh, I was on the verge of using the word spiritual there, which uh, is a very odd thing for me to say because I'm, I'm a complete like atheist and I don't really believe in 
spirits as such uh it's not for me you know uh, it's just because there isn't a a better word for it i don't think um it's it's certainly a pseudo religious experience perhaps something that takes the place of a religion when you're not religious i think that's probably what it is it's kind of like my equivalent of going to church i probably get the same sort of thing out of it that a religious person would get going to a place of worship there are similar things going on and i don't know what those things are i don't know how to describe it but it's the sort of thing that i, I want to just keep on doing this you know it doesn't have to be like every week like like a religious person will go to their place of worship once a week the logistics of going to a gig once a week kind of cost wise is kind of difficult also you know practicality wise you've got to kind of organize it with tickets and have the time available and have you know how you're going to get there who you're going to go with that sort of thing it wouldn't be practical uh, the way that my life is at the moment to go to a show certainly not a show of the size that I went to the PJ Harvey because it's quite expensive you know but there there are kind of other places to go that cost a lot less and would be equally good I just think that's a, a thing that I personally should have in my life as a regular thing first of all because I enjoy it but also because I think there is some kind of health benefit you know in terms of mental health and uh, I was gonna say spiritual again spiritual health <laughs> is that a thing is that a thing that um, religious people talk about do you talk about spiritual health I don't know because I'm not part of that world so, you know, there's a lot of talk about mental health. Is is spiritual health a thing? It's a, that's a genuine question. I'm just wondering if it is or if it is not. Who knows? I am, of course, thinking a lot about the concept of life after death at the moment because I'm writing this webcomic, uh, The Green Room, which uh, is on my website, frankburson.co.uk. Very much thinking a lot about death and uh, ideas about what happens after death and i i firmly of the belief that nothing happens after death that's my opinion but i don't want to in any way ram that down people's throats in the way that a lot of these professional atheists like to do richard dawkins what an annoying man what an incredibly annoying person <laughs> can't stand the guy and i actually that there was a time when i i absolutely loved richard dawkins he wrote a book called the selfish gene which is about altruism in the animal kingdom i guess that that is the that is my elevator pitch for richard dawkins the selfish gene now some people have incorrectly categorized the selfish gene as being this kind of right wing survival of the fittest explanation as to why you should be selfish as a human being and that is not what the book is about. The book is the complete opposite of that. Despite the fact that Richard Dawkins has turned into this horrible kind of internet troll who just kind of spends his time sneering at religious people, The Selfish Gene is still a good book. What was I saying? I was talking about live music as a religious experience. Yeah, I think I was onto something there. Perhaps that is something that I will spend a bit more time with and maybe write something down on some actual paper and stuff on that very subject. You know, along similar lines, I've been listening to a lot of classical music recently, which I was surprised by myself, was that I've always 
never been able to connect with it properly. You know, I've been able to kind of appreciate it for what it is. Occasionally in like um, years gone by, I would try and like listen to a bit of Mozart or a bit of Beethoven or whatever it is. And just, I would appreciate it for what it is, but I would also think actually this isn't for me. You know, I don't, it's from a world that I'm not part of. And as much as I would like to be into it, I'm just not into it and now for some reason pretty much overnight uh happened a few weeks ago started listening to bbc radio 3 which is uh which is a great radio station uh, if you're outside the uk i don't know if you can access it you probably can somehow through the internet and if you're in the uk i definitely recommend listening to radio 3 as i have been doing on a daily basis for the last, for the last few weeks and it's been oh it's been an amazing experience listening to all this music that I wasn't familiar with properly and now I've it's got under my skin in a way that it never has before. I think, I, I don't know, but I think it's something to do with me kind of changing as a person as I've got older. I don't think it's impossible to appreciate classical music if you're a young person, but I think there's a reason why punk rock, for example, particularly appeals to young people speaking for myself also I was massively into punk rock when I was a teenager it was like that was like my favorite kind of music and the thing about punk rock is that it's instant gratification isn't it the songs are like two minutes long roar your way through one of them and then you're on to the next one that's kind of what your life is like as a teenager it's kind of like okay what's the next thing let's do this then what are we doing after that? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? Just racing your way through life, you know. Well, you get to my age, I'm, I'm going to be 44 soon. I'm, you know, I'm getting old. And classical music is the antithesis of that. It's kind of like, we're going to sit here and we're going to listen to this. And we're really just going to take our time with this thing. And it's going to be an experience. We're not going anywhere. We're not thinking about what the next thing is. We are listening to this thing, experiencing it to its fullest. And we are completely in the moment with this music. I think I'm now in that kind of place. That is my temperament now, which is great. I really like it. I, I like having that temperament that, <laughs> that I'm able to appreciate a symphony whereas when I was a teenager I, all I wanted to do was listen to a two-minute punk song and that was the best thing for me you know and uh, as I got older I kind of got got into more kind of uh, complex music and uh, yeah it's it's all been kind of um, leading up to this I guess where I'm now <laughs> I'm now at an age and a temperament where I can appreciate classical music like I say that I'm only speaking for myself uh, because I know that there are you know teenagers who appreciate and listen to classical music but probably generally I mean it it does appeal to an older person's temperament and <laughs> one of the things that I have kind of figured out from listening to Radio 3 is that I'm presuming that most of the Radio 3 listenership are at least age 60 and above. I would guess that that is the bulk of their listenership. I figured this out 
just from the way that the presenters talk about stuff. This is the other great thing about Radio 3 as well. The presenters are so comforting. They're, they're, they're really kind of like, OK, that was uh, Joseph Hayden, Symphony Number no. 52. And now we're going to move on to play something from an operetta by bloody bloody blah blah person yeah and um it's just a, there's a real comfort to their voices you know it's um it's part of the escapism of the whole thing i think it's a real um great kind of escape from real life i think listening to all this because i think other other forms of music are they're a way of engaging with real life you know particularly with songs and stuff like that whatever the song happens to be about you can relate to it in your own life Usually when you hear a song, it's relatable in some way to your own life and you can reflect upon your own experiences, whether it's a love song or whether it's about having a hard time in some way or having a good time in some way. The song is kind of this narrative that you can tap into and use your own experiences as a kind of open dialogue and open communication with that song. Well, that sounds good. I, I like that. <laughs> I'll have to remember that I said that. That sounded very clever. Or, or maybe maybe it's nonsense. I don't know. But I, I think with instrumental music, the meaning behind the music is obviously quite obscured. I mean, that there may not be any meaning behind it, or there may be a meaning that the artist intended that you're not aware of. So you're just able to make your own meaning behind the music. And it's just an experience, I think, with instrumental music. It's more about uh, the music is expressing something that words can't express. And that's one of the things that I like about it. I think if the artist wanted to express something in words, then they they would do, wouldn't they? But they've chosen not to do that. They've chosen not to use words. They've chosen just to use the sound of the instruments. And that can mean whatever you want it to mean. Sometimes it means nothing, sometimes it means something, but it's uh, it's a great form of escapism. And I think the Radio 3 presenters are good at making themselves part of that world. And when you when you hear them talk, there's there's no problems in the world, you know. <laughs> there, there don't seem to be, a, there's no acknowledgement of any of the bad things that are happening in the world. It's just pure escapism. That's wonderful. I really do think that. Like I say, I figured out the general age of the listenership of Radio 3 because whenever the presenters mention something modern like the internet, like they'll say, oh, you can listen to this on the BBC Sounds app. And then they explain, <laughs> they have to explain what, what an app is. <laughs> you know, an app is this thing, or you go on the internet, go on your computer and type in BBC Sounds and uh, it'll come up on the search engine and then you click on the link and then... They kind of have to do this every time because a lot of the listeners presumably are people in their 80s, who are, a lot of whom will have no interest in going online for anything, really. But it's just this thing across media, isn't it? All across the BBC, they're saying all this. Oh, yeah, go online, go online. Go on social media and talk about this. No, I don't want to. <laughs> just leave me alone. Stop talking. Stop telling me to go on social media. I don't want to. That's a whole other bugbear of mine, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that for today, shall we? Coming back to PJ Harvey, actually, the interesting thing about PJ Harvey's songs is that generally um, <laughs> the lyrics are very kind of impenetrable for me. I, I don't know what 
any of the songs are about on the new album. I think they're great songs and they sound great and you can feel an emotional connection to them and that is great. But I've got no idea what any of the songs are about. It's not because I can't hear... That you know, sometimes with songs you can't hear what is being said because the way that the singer is pronouncing the words, you can hear what PJ Harvey is saying. I just don't know what she's on about. You know what I mean? I haven't got, I haven't got a clue. But I think that's good. I think there's there's something great about that. That's that's another thing. That's another way that my taste has changed over the years. I think because I used to, if I didn't know what a song was about, I didn't like the song. What are they going on about? What's you know? I don't get this. But now I've I've got a completely different attitude towards song lyrics, I suppose, is that in a way it's distracting when you do know what the song is about because it kind of puts you in mind as you start thinking about what the words are about. Whereas with if you're listening to a song and you don't know what the hell it's about, it's more about the music and more about the way that it makes you feel. PJ Harvey's new album and also there's the one that came out it must be about 10 years ago now. I don't know when it was, but there was an album called Let England Shake and it won the Mercury Music Prize. And uh, rightly so, it was a great album. I, I listened to that a huge amount. must have been around 2012 when I was writing uh, the novel 100. I was listening to Let England Shake quite a lot. I think I was actually listening to it because uh, when I'm writing, I usually listen to instrumental music rather than music that's got words in it because I find the words distracting so I can't get into writing so but I can listen to instrumental music while I'm writing but because of the way PJ Harvey's songs are and the fact that the lyrics to me don't really make any sense I'm sure they mean something to her and I'm sure that if I did the research I'd be able to find out <laughs> what these songs are about I know so when it came out I was reading about it that that Let England Shake album and it's supposed to be like this concept album about England. So all the songs are about England in, in some way. And that's fine, but yeah, what do you mean it's about England? What what about England? I don't know. <laughs> I've got a clue. And uh, uh, to this day, I, I know that album really, really well. And it was great that she played us a couple of songs from it at the gig that I went to the other day. It just put me back in mind of that time when I was listening to that album all the time. And yeah, again... I don't know what those songs are about, other than they're about England. <laughs> you know, I could write a song about England. It's a football chant. England, England. <laughs> so I hope we've learned something here. I certainly have. I've been learning things about myself uh, as I've been talking. Um, <laughs> this is like therapy. Is it? This one, uh, this particular section, is it's just just been like free therapy for me. So thank you for coming along for the ride. I feel like I'm a different person now at the end of it. So um, that's quite nice, isn't it? Oh, by the way, just before I leave you, the footnotes. That's why we're all here, isn't it? You know what? There's only one thing that I've written down about today's episode, and that is Peter Benchley. <laughs> Peter Benchley, the guy who wrote George, you know, Peter Benchley. So that's it. That's the entire thing. I used to read Peter Benchley novels when I was a teenager I, I got into them I, I don't necessarily think that he's a great author but uh, it was good kind of for me at the time just kind of reading these kind of fun thrillers mostly about sharks <laughs> sometimes they weren't about sharks <laughs> mostly they're about sharks 
<laughs> capitalizing upon the success of the smash hit novel slash movie Jaws, of course. Uh, so that's who Peter Benchley is. I don't know anything about him, really. I don't know whether he's still alive. But there you go. Uh, fair play to you, Mr. Benchley, whether you are alive or dead. Um, thank you for entertaining me as a teenager. I was, I was thoroughly entertained by your books. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for listening. We'll see you, uh, see you folks again in the next episode and, of course, uh, in the next footnotes if you choose to uh, listen this far. Thank you.